Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. Yeah, welcome uh, to UK Schools are Racist, Now What? So my name's Simi, um, I'm one of the founders of Not A Trend, um, a youth-led organisation that we set up a couple of months ago in response to the murder of George Floyd. So we kind of, it's kind of all about targeting performative activism and making sure that conversations we have around race and um, anti-racism are continued for longer than often they're kept in the media or on social media. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm Ava, I'm also one of the fans of Not A Trend, and Simi's just summed up what it is, but yeah. Um, so that, that's us. And would our panellists like to introduce themselves? You start with me. Yeah. Valerie. Okay, my name is um, Valerie Daniel. I suppose I should say Dr. Valerie Daniel. I'm a head teacher in Birmingham. And um, whilst anti racism um, has never really felt like a part of my role, it has become incredibly important for us to embrace this in a way that is real it to embrace it within education but also within real life a lot of us my age i can only describe as my friend sharif has put it we've been sleepwalking and um we have to wake up so thank you ever so much for the opportunity to be here thank you so much for coming <laughs> You're welcome. Um, Shall I go next? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Mira Chidasama. I'm an English media film studies teacher in Martin Keynes. I'm also a research lead and the editor of a teacher research journal called Innovate Journal. Um, often working with the Open University around children's research, but also really passionate about this current topic. I guess, like Valerie, kind of, it's never been the thing that we this topic hasn't been the one that I've always had to make a deal of it's always very intuitive and been part of the the discussion and my practice um so just having a platform now to talk about some of the things I've already kind of discussed during my own training years as well as with other trainee teachers it's really nice to have this platform to actually have a discussion and have it grounded and kind of be with like-minded people great thank you um so throughout this um, event and this discussion, feel free with welcoming all questions and comments. So you can either say that again or uh, say it in the chat. Um, feel free to do that throughout. We'll also have a more uh, a designated section for questions at the end. So that's introductions made and we'll start. Ava, do you want to ask the first question? Um, how is COVID-19? the Black Lives Matter protests change, and the Black Lives Matter protests and other things going on in media, um, such as exam results and stuff like such things like that, change the way that the majority of the public views race in education and society as a whole. Do you think these changes are long-lasting? Did you hear me there? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Perfect. I don't mind starting. I'm more than happy to kind of give it a go, yeah? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> when I was kind of first thinking about this, kind of a couple of thoughts really. I felt like 
on the one hand, it was really unfortunate that it took COVID-19 and then the, to coincide with Black Lives Matter movement because I felt like did it need to take this much of the world to pause to then reflect upon the behaviours and the actions and the systematic racism that has been in place for such a long time. That was the unfortunate part of it. The, the better part of this kind of, this moment is that people have started to have a conversation, but equally from what I've kind of seen online and what I've engaged with other people and having discussions with other people, I feel like as much as we are beginning to have this as some sort of dialogue, I do feel like we have to be moving into a, a space of change. So actually acting on the things that we're saying, acting on the things that we would like to have done. So if you want to have more diverse literature in your curriculum, are you actually fighting for it within your departments? Are you actually trying to weave them in as much as possible? And I think there's some of the questions that we have to ask, because I think as much as the national curriculum in the UK, and I speak as an English, in, you know, from an English perspective, you know, the literature side of that paper is something that I've of course questioned throughout my training years, but find those opportunities within language and within literature as much as possible to kind of push those diverse texts in I think is really important um, and to do that as much as possible, not through only through literary text, but also from different mediums. So I guess my point now is, yes, it's a lovely thing that we're having the discussion, but my other kind of, I guess I'm opening it out for a discussion is where next? Like, how do we ensure that what we're, what we're saying is also what we're acting as and we're also implementing on a much larger scale so that our students never feel disadvantaged or underrepresented. So I'll leave some of those questions out to hang for a little while. <laughs> um, for me, um, COVID-19 was, I don't know, it, it, it's probably been the most alienating thing I've ever experienced in my life. So that in of itself was um, was interesting. Black Lives Matter coinciding with that. I think the powerful message that I got from that is give me liberty or give me death. Because people went out there knowing what the impact of it could be. And that to me is a powerful message in what's the point in living this life in the way we're living it. So it stirred me to anger and I had to understand what kind of anger makes a difference because impotent anger does nothing. Impotent rage does nothing except, you know, like the, the protests for me are the beginning of a, con a conversation about transformation. It's where it highlights the issue. That's what it is for me. Then we come to this passive aggressive anger that is, is stems both sides of this issue where you have um, you know a continuum in, in regards to a race and I've done sort of think of it as the majority side and the non-majority population side and the angers that are, um, that passive aggressive anger that spans that continuum is a very interesting space but it's where white privilege exists, it's where um, black stagnation exists, it's where um, people have normalized a situation that we should never have accepted as normal. It's where 
black people like myself have been sleepwalking. It's where things that shouldn't have been happening, we kind of keep our heads down. But silence is violent. Silence is wrong in that situation. Then it hits me that I had to become, I had to enter a space of assertive anger, one that actually puts me in the mindset of um, solutions and making a difference and being able to envisage a life outside of this dynamic. So what we're left with is how do we make a difference? And that for me is why these discussions are important. So yeah, I know that was a mouthful, but sorry, hope you get it. (laughs) No, definitely. I think, especially, yeah, Mira, what you were saying with people kind of just talking a lot about it and Valerie, you saying about how we've kind of been alerted to the um, the problem that I think a lot of people had forgotten, but COVID-19 mm-hmm. and the Black Lives Matter, like um, the uptake in protests kind of really highlighted that. But now it's like, we've got that anger. What are we going to do with it? And this going... Post, uh, coming out of the lockdown, going into September with schools beginning is when we'll actually see whether, you know, a lot of people saying that they're going to do more. We'll see whether more is actually done. Mm-hmm. Ava, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with the fact that, like, I think we have such... I feel like now, it, I, I feel as if there's, a, like, a leverage and there's a point where we could... Because mm. so, there's been so much upheaval that there may be a chance to start afresh and start new because I think there's so many people saying we don't want to go back to normal but the thing is for so many people um normal um normal was kind of just like they were able to sleep walk through it as has been said but we don't want that anymore and it's seeing whether people because the government in my opinion will try and put us back into that but I don't want that and I think everybody here can agree that we don't want that so it's about really making sure we don't Slip back into the old habits which were forced upon us before and really going forward, in my opinion, at least. Definitely. And going on to the next sort of question or topic, Ava, I sent you them, but I've changed the order, just letting you know. Um, With schools um, starting back in September and kind of going back into whatever sense of normal we've got now, do you think all these like changes to curriculum and even society as a whole, do you think there is a time frame for when this stuff should be done? Or will there come a point where too much damage has been done for schools to try and implement anti-racist practice? Or, you know, is it never too late? I, for me, um, there is a need to create safe spaces within schools to start conversations with the people who are delivering education. We keep forgetting that they are a massive part of what happens within the system. We seem to think that the system will work on its own volition. It won't. If we don't start addressing what people feel, and I think it being on Twitter, it's been shocking to me how many people actually have very racist ideals without thinking that they're racist. Mm -hmm. They honestly don't think they are. And and, and, and it's quite, quite, um, you have to understand that the problem is bigger than that person. That person has had a drip feed of, you are right, you are 
white, you are um, entitled, you are, and they don't even see it as that because it's a really complex issue. So if we start looking, I think the simplicity for me is that we assume everybody's on the same page, but what does what's fed this this situation and what's fed the situation is um um, britain having colonies the you know this whole concept of imperialism this whole concept of understanding that imperialism is raiding um other countries of their their um exploiting them economically that's what that is but that is sold in the history of schools as it as if it was a, a, a an amazing thing so the truth of that is not there and you have another aspect of that is the media that constantly drip feeds negativity of black people or people of color. So that is constantly in the, the, the public's purview, this whole idea that anything black is wrong. And how we try to shift those agendas, we cannot just approach this with one um, element of doing anything it has to be a multi-systemic approach trying mm. to do this just through education as if education is in is is in you know this tunnel is not going to work not from my perspective so in in some ways i i perceive people as having to go and take on different aspects of this thing. We have to identify what these aspects are and then start trying to make channels into them. Yeah. I'm trying not to get too much. You guys tell me to shut up if I'm going on too No. Oh, yeah. great. <laughs> no, I couldn't agree with you more, Valerie. I think there has to be, I guess this kind of goes back to the principles that I have the journal around is this idea that we have to work together on this. You know, it has to be not only just, are we talking about issues that are particularly difficult? Okay, but also kind of opening up, I guess what you're talking about there in regards to imperialism. I think that's as a byproduct of imperialism from a kind of an Indian heritage. It's a conversation that I think we don't have with students and I don't think that we have them all the way going up through the chain. And I think you're absolutely right, Valerie, that it just gets dismissed and almost feels like, we can't talk about we can't talk about the truth. We can't have these opinions because it almost feels it's too contentious. And if we have yeah. them, we don't have the time, or the curriculum doesn't allow you to. But if we don't make the time, if we don't have these conversations, then we're not equipping young people to then to go into contexts or areas or situations in which they will be faced with people that have very contrasting views. So I think there has to come to a point where. And like you said on Twitter, there was a lot of opinions on Twitter that I thought, whoa, that is, there's some, there's some, like, my husband calls it COVID, covert racism, where it's not completely explicit, but it's so ingrained into our language that you don't even recognize it anymore. And I think it's that level of unpicking that we have to do first before we can go in, go in with an anti-racist education, because I just think even the idea of an anti-racist education seems bizarre to me. You know, it's like that, you know, that whole idea that we have to, it's like a little pill that we just have to go in and digest, but it's like way more than that, you know, mm -hmm. we have to even go into all of these bigger topics. I think if you, if you start looking, for example, at the context of the police, 
and stop and searches and the way all of these things feed into a system that's failing black people in a, in a massive way. And I think one of the things we have to remember, and this may be a bit controversial, is we as black people, the ones who um, stand to gain something by doing this and, and, and literally doing it, we are fired up, but there's a part of us, as angry as we are, that has to acknowledge that people who have had um, privileges and, and, and um, feelings about their, their sense of entitlement and their sense of importance um, feel like they have something to lose. And how we do, because at the end of the day, these are people, and this is a people issue. We, it's not, as much as we talk about the system, is the system is impacting on people in a very, very real way. So I oftentimes talk about um, the cleaner I had in my school who was male, white cleaner, and he completely had a meltdown on me one day. And he was going, I am a white man. I am a, this is my country. He just completely lost it because I asked him to do something more than once. And he basically told me he didn't want me telling him what to do. And I said, but that's my job. You know, it's a part of what I do. And he, he espoused this and it's always sat with me. At the very least, he knows he's better than me. So as much as I make far more money than he will ever make, which really bothered him, he is a better person than me by virtue of the fact that he's white. You have to understand that a lot of people hold this without knowing why they hold it. It's because history has taught them that. It's because the media tells them mm -hmm. that. All the media reports crime for black people as opposed to crime that a white person has done is incredible. I've started looking into that kind of stuff. It's how all of us are affected by this drip feed. So, yeah, this is huge for me. Definitely. I think that those in power are so reluctant to change because they're the ones that's, that are benefiting from these systems of, of power and imbalance. Mm -hmm. So although, yeah, it's systemic racism and systemic um, practices that are causing this issue those that are it's people as you say it's people who are in the position to change those systems who will who are hesitant to do so because it negatively affects them and I think with curriculum changes as well saying that there's I I think at first it was kind of change the curriculum things like that but then it's thinking if you asked for a, a more equal curriculum and they say you know it's not in the curriculum it kind of teaching black students and uh, those students that it's not as important because it's not in the curriculum and that un unless it's in the curriculum it's important and kind of emphasizing that thing of anything that's not in the curriculum is is not as worthy and because mm -hmm. that black history isn't in the curriculum black students are already learning that they're not as worthy as like white students who's who the majority of the curriculum is about them. Ava, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, once again, I agree with that. It's just, it's that, it's a, I think it's really that drip effect from like the earlier stages of like, the even the toys that you get when you're a child, if like 
the the whole ideas around dolls that kind of thing it's just from the beginning and it just shows how like how are we meant to change something that's so ingrained into our society how do we go about that because i think that as we've been saying the people in power for for, for me i think the people in, the people in power need to change we need to have an overhaul at the top to see like proper systemic change because i don't know when they're they're going to want to change sorry to be like but i just can't see boris wanting to change anything because it just has benefited him and his family so long but yeah that's kind of my, my thoughts I, I think um we we have to kind of recognize that there are a lot of disruptive forces around um, any kind of change. So whenever you speak about decolonizing the curriculum, you immediately get people throwing in this thing, oh, they're going to wipe out anything that's mm. pale, male and stale, or uh, any of our white men and whatever. I don't think anybody is trying to erase the history as it stands. What we want is our place within that history. And we want to, it's almost as if by invalidating that we exist, it, um, it means that they can, people can continue treating us in the way that they have. If you look at what happened to George Floyd, there's ha there, you have to dehumanize a person to the point where you can kneel across their neck and cheerfully kill them. That, to me, is a very scary concept, that we are dehumanized. But I, when I'm arguing with people on Twitter, which I seem to do a lot these days, what I watch is this constant way of the way black people, especially black females, are othered. We're othered. We kind of just refer to a she. Or you get the trope of angry black woman, which I never, ever do. Or you get these, these, these labels that are fitted to us to keep us in a box. And it's some of these things we have to start unpicking because if we, we don't understand it and how we work through it, we are going to be spinning these plates that are designed for us to spin. And we keep missing the, the, the areas that we need to focus in on. So that's, I don't know if that makes sense to anybody, but... Definitely, I agree. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, I think the next, next question. question. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, the so in regards to like as this whole thing is around curriculum and the curriculum, um, are reparations so I like things like free tuition, things like the um like scholarship programs things like that and decolonizing de the curriculums is that is that enough what else needs to be done i i'm very wary of using terminologies without defining them because i think if we don't standardize what we mean by decolonizing the curriculum yeah. we end up with a very vague idea of what this is and a lot of room for manipulation so i think if we're going out there really boldly we need to say this is what we mean 
by decolonizing the curriculum. And we are speaking um, about strengthening education. And we are, we're not talking about diversity training. You know, everybody's running around throwing diversity training at the problem, which all it does is probably stir up more anger and resentment than anything else because people are not in a fit state to to deal with, with, with that kind of emotion. So I think if we if we're trying to make notes, I think it would be one be crystal clear about what decolonizing the curriculum means. That would be the first thing. I for me, I would be thinking about um what kind of um ways we can utilize um, education. So it is a multi-pronged approach. So it's, um, because more and more we're looking at a situation where education is, is, doesn't want us to be critical thinkers. It, it is quite a scary prospect. That's being wiped slowly out of the, 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 the system. They just want people who follow instructions and follow directions and can operate as robots. So um, we have to make sure that the idea of critical thinking stays within the, um, stays within the, the purview of education because Research and teaching is about open-minded engagement and it is not on offer. It is inconsistent in this country, which just adds to the inequity and inequalities that we have. So, yeah, I think that's where I would go with it. I couldn't agree more with you, Valerie. I, I think... I think absolutely agree with you. I think it has to be a, a multi... A, a kind of a collaborative approach in which we're looking at all the kind of the layers and the players that are involved in this. I don't think this is something that we can, like I said at the beginning, we've started a conversation, but we have to get everybody's strengths in this and think, okay, what can we bring to the table and how can we actually create a curriculum that from when a child entering in from, you know, reception and leaving at the age of 18, what are they, what diet of education are they receiving? And I think when we start having those types of conversations, I think that's when we can start to create something really magical. Because at the moment, I think, like you said, there's like a diet of education that we're just feeding students and it's very passive. Um, and as we, if we start to kind of step back from it due to COVID-19, I think people have had the chance to step back and question their own practice and the diet that they're giving students. I think then we can start to really be honest with ourselves what we are doing as practitioners and I think having to start open some spaces within the curriculum where you're inviting students to be critical showing them the national curriculum and getting them to criticize it or to bring a text into the forefront and say actually this is as valid as anything or pausing your your kind of three your starter main and plenary kind of three-step plan to say actually if this is a, there's an issue or a topic that you're interested in let's talk about it and not being afraid to kind of stop the conversation and bring and invite that discussion into the classroom just because we have to get through the curriculum. And I think there needs to be more of that, I guess, and that's more my approach on a, like a bottom-up level. And, yeah. and that's where I kind of I sit with it because I guess that's the only thing I have the power or the influence to kind of change, I guess, in the position that I'm in, you know? Um, 
So I think that's kind of my, my, my kind of mental space at the moment is if we can do anything is kind of to bring in that criticality for our students. We have to really empower them and to start getting these skills in there as, as early as possible. The thing that we have to do then is recognize what is a barrier to that. Yes. And the barriers to that is our systems are set up along league tables and Ofsted and it, it's, it's geared towards outcomes. And head teachers and, and school leaders are, are, have to be a part of that political dynamic because it impacts on the reputation of the school and it is it's how we make them feel at home in 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 doing things that actually takes away from what the system says they need to um to, to push out you know so it, 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 is, it is a difficult and complex yeah I couldn't agree with you more like it's super difficult and I think I almost feel very rebellious as a teacher when you're starting to and you think well I shouldn't feel rebellious this should be a very much like the nature of being a, a teacher that I can teach this text that I think are the most relevant to our students the ones that the students have kind of picked for themselves and it shouldn't make me I shouldn't feel like a rebellious teacher but I do, because you feel yourself going against the system, like you said, Valerie. So yeah. I think, like you said, it's a very difficult one. It's a very difficult one. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you, because these uh, kind of uh, critical thinking tools and like these qualities is what is supposed to be, is part of a good education. And it's almost as if our, our current system is trying to strive for those sorts of well-rounded attributes is like not if it's not the norm which it should you would think it would be but because the system only measures success in terms of exams and grades and things like and league tables critical thinking and like you know becoming an empathetic person it doesn't count as as an outstanding or good in Ofsted's eyes so if you try and emphasize that to your students which is kind of part of the main thing that students should get from an education it's kind of you're not doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing as Vera said like you're being rebellious which like that shouldn't be a rebellious thing to want I think Akaya did you have something to add um yeah I really agree with um everything that everything's saying it's really good um see like our future as students we can't we can't have our future continue to be as how it's been in the present time as and as the past because if we look at it, it um society has just brought a mentality that um for example black people um are the underdogs or they're not as high as white people and then you just have different stereotypes for example if you have um, for example, you have stereotypes that Muslim people are terrorists and there's extremists and it's not, it's not fair and it's not nice because you just have a lot of stereotypes that absolutely have and make no sense at all and it's not good at all. And like, um, as my parents um, have told me, sorry? No, no, I was, I, I was catching up on the point that you had there and I don't want you to let go of it. 
it, it doesn't only just affect young people. I'm, I am a, a doctor of education. I'm a head teacher. I, I work in a school. While I'm in my school, I have a modicum of respect. I get out of my school. I'm still articulate, still well-dressed, still doing my thing. I go into Marks and Spencers and being followed around because the concept is, is, is a, is a, it's seat into the fabric of the environment. And it's going to take people like you, young man, I don't know your name, but you are so important. It's going to take people like you to start making a difference and to start standing up and not accepting what we did, people like me, was we accepted it because we thought that by keeping our heads down, it was going to make a difference. People will see you're working hard. People will see you're contributing. The world right now, in terms of being really realistic, it's not, you can work yourselves to death. You will never get that respect if you don't shout for it. You've got to say, when you go somewhere and people are treating you differently, you have to start saying, I'm really sorry. The color of my money is the same as that person. So I am demanding respect. And I've started doing that. So I'll let you talk again, but it was just important to, to let you know it doesn't get better, not just with education. This is how embedded this thing is. It, it's bigger than we, we actually understand in some ways. Not to make you hopeless. I just, hopeless. To, <laughs> I just want to say thank you for that well of wisdom because like, it really just helps to be motivated because the thing that um, normally when I just think about it, I just see that a lot of adults are just going to go away without, uh, I just hope that they don't go away not seeing that everything's going to change because there's always hope and it takes people who have confidence to be able to say no. Uh, I'm as equal as you are because it's not it's not fair that um, in history, we learned that um, a black man has died because of nothing. And it's, it's absolutely just rubbish because it, you can't just be um, harming someone for no reason. And just because it's some color, like, we're all human, right? Yeah. Just put your hand up if you're human here. We're all human, right? None of us are aliens. So why aren't we supposed to be treating ourselves the same? We, and we all have one thing in common. In, but not just that, the, our blood. Our blood is all the same color, it's red. And so there's no reason we should be treating ourselves like we're aliens or we're coming to invade the planet. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with treating each other in a nice way. We shouldn't be treating each other in a bad way. I remember when I was doing... Um, a school project and they asked us to do um, a video, a news video and I did um, a Black Lives Matter video and then I spoke about um, how we are all human and that we should treat each other the same and I, um, I know how to edit so I had two of myself and I was interviewing myself so I made it very creative and it sent a message and I got like an update for at school and like if we just have more people not giving up for our future it will just like our future should be like a utopia because for example there's reasons why people do things 
It's people why there's reasons why people just give up because you've treated them or the uh, in the wrong way. You've treated their ancestors in the wrong way. And then for like racist stereotypes, for example, um, I remember when we were learning in school, uh, and then we heard about this terrorist attack um, that a white man did in Australia. And then a t- teacher was telling us that you see these t- stereotypes, they they give excuses and say that oh this person had mental issues. But if a black person had mental issues, or if um, um, someone else had mental issues. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say that, would you? And it's just not good because you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that to your own kind. So why are you going to do it to anyone else? Especially when you, everyone that's human, you are the same kind. So there's no excuse for you to be saying that, oh, this person is black. Oh, I don't want to associate with you. Or this person is white. I don't want to associate with you. Or this person's Asian and I don't want to associate with you. We're all human. So there's no excuse that we should be treating each other in the wrong way. I remember when in school I was going through like a lot of problems. You just have people um, insulting you just because of the color of your skin. Then my parents just told me to just ignore them and face what I'm doing. And now, it's, um, now where are they? Because right now, they're my friends because I decided not to be rude to them because two wrongs don't make a right. Because if two people, if there's one person who is insulting you and being evil to you, and then you want to do the same thing. It's just, it's not going to do the same thing if you heard um, Romeo and Juliet, you know, two feuding families. It ended up in a bad way at the end of the result. But if they if they just acted peaceful to each other and had a rethink, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't end like that. I, I think you're so right. And I think a lot of the mentality that black people have um, as going to continue for what Bakaya said and what Valerie said was that kind of if you prove that you're one of the good ones you'll be you'll be treated differently when it's like one that's not how it ends up in practice as you've shown Valerie also two you shouldn't have to prove that you're one of the good ones for that basic respect and that basic like um treatment you shouldn't have to prove that oh I'm well educated I'm smart to for your life to matter which I think is one of the things that has become evident through the Black Lives Matter movement recently. And I think it's starting, people are starting to learn that, but there's still a way, like a long way to go. Yeah, but it's uh, one of the biggest things that we have is representation as well. Where are our, where mm. are our role models? Who are they? Where are they? And not everybody that's dark skinned is a role model. We have a lot of um, people who should be role models who are racial gatekeepers. They go in and they close the door behind them. And we have to be able to understand how representation happens and start taking models of that from other places in the world to become effective at, at what, you know, what we can do because... Um, it's shocking to me still, and I can give you another example as a head teacher where a policeman came into the school because we had an issue, and this policeman kept insisting that he speak to my boss, and I'm like, I'm the head teacher, and he's like, no, I need the person that's over you. He kept doing that to the point where I said, listen, 
when you find that person, come and let me know, please. I went into my office. He went and spoke to my PA in the front office and had to come back to me shamefacedly. But that is what you deal with the people as people assume you are less than. And when you're not less than, it's a source of fear for, for a lot of people. I get called intimidating, formidable, all kinds of words because I happen to have a brain that people are not comfortable with. And the assumption is if you're looking at Dominic Cummings and people that are on, on Twitter, is that if you are of color, if they believe in something called eugenics, which says that we cannot possibly be as bright, and putting it as simply as we can. Why? There's nothing that backs that up. There is some very flawed research that continues um, because people want it to continue. And so when I tell you that this thing is entrenched, it is um, complex, really, really, really complex. I think there's a duty for us to start with what we can do with quick wins, but we cannot miss understanding the finer bits of this of this inequality because we have to devise strategies for them. Sorry, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> it is fine. Carry on. <laughs> Thinking of um, bowl model, what you're saying. Do you think that sort of like um, affirmative action schemes or like scholarships and stuff in um, in like a senior leadership level or a teacher level, even um, in terms of scholarships for schools, do you think they can be harmful or are, are they the way to go? Um, I, I, it's sad that we have to even consider the context of affirmative action, but we wouldn't have to consider it if we had true equality. So that's one aspect of it. I think the other aspect for me is I've seen in this country, and I wasn't born here, so a part of me being as confident as I am is that my parents had massively high expectations of me. It was embedded in into my psyche from a very young age. I came here when I, when I was 29 years old, so nobody got to train my brain to say that, you know, this is this is only what's doable for me. So I kept hitting up against that glass ceiling because I, I, I just didn't conform to those things. But when you start looking at the fact that affirmative action gets right up the noses of the, the majority population because they perceive it as um, somebody getting a job unfairly, um, it becomes a really interesting conversation, yeah? Um, despite all the research that's been done around people with different names and all this stuff, that bit of hurt feelings is what seems to drive these conversations. But on the flip side of that, I've seen very interesting behaviors. I've seen people who are blatantly incapable of doing a job being promoted just for them to to um, confirm the narrative. See, 
we've given them a chance and look, look at what's going on. So this, again, I keep putting it back. This is a people issue on a lot of different ways. It is, it is the, the system that says if black women wear their natural hair, we're somehow being militant. If we um, dress in, um, in, with natural clothes or the clothes that come from our culture, we're somehow, um, you know, going up against the system. Why can we not be who we are and be as effective? Why do we have to conform? And that is what everything is about. You need to conform to being British for you to succeed. Yeah, there's a lot of conversations that need to be had. Definitely. Mira, did you have any? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying there, but I think for me the idea of representation is just, I find it more and more, I guess, being an English teacher and being one of the first ethnic English teachers within my department, I found myself being that tokenistic teacher that has to kind of deal with deal with diversity and it I kind of I think it probably gets a little bit tiring at times and at times you feel like you're you're doing the right thing but you I think like you said Valerie this idea that those people in power that get the same jobs that they've got there because of no no actual merit of such or substance but it's just simply because it is part and parcel of what the system does I think that I find very tricky to deal with as I kind of at this point in my career and start to think about actually where do I want to go to next and feel like actually the opportunities available to me even now don't feel as equal as what it could be for somebody from a white British background, you know, and conversations around identity, I think are, again, I think they're somewhat shut down. I don't think we have them enough um, because we're too scared to have them. And I think there's a, an element of that Britishness about us that doesn't allow for those conversations because either it feels too impolite or it feels like something, if we say something, it's going to be too controversial but equally, if we're not going to have those conversations, there isn't going to be progress. So I think there has to come to a point, which is where I think we are now, where those conversations are starting to be had. And I think what we're realising is that whilst people may feel like they're very anti-racist, a lot of their ideas have been jaded by a system and a, a culture that actually has kind of drip fed that racism for such a long time, like Valerie had mentioned before. Um, and I think that then jades people as they go into the working world and how they do make those decisions when they are in positions of power. So I think it is getting those players and those kind of participants in a room or to have conversations like this, where we are able to break down some of these barriers, like we mentioned before with Valerie kind of asking kind of what are these barriers? And I think some uh, a big part of it has to be representation you know and feeling like well how many of our teachers come from a diverse range of backgrounds you know and who are children seeing what are they reading what are they being exposed to and I think there has to be a lot of work being done around that 
in order to create critical readers and to create critical citizens. But there's another I, I got called I, on, on the internet. Um, somebody said to me, you repulse me and you should be um, like taken to account for all the brainwashing you've done to, um, to children. And I, I teach in a maintained, I'm a maintained nursery school teacher so trust me there's no brainwashing going on but it's just that vision of people are so um scared and you you you're saying what content um are children being exposed to do you know how much reaction you would have from the majority population Mm -hmm. what we perceive as the right kind of content because they don't want their kids being taught that bs is what it's being said so it's this is why i'm saying to you we have what is in effect a spherical and 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 cyclical issue it's Mm. not linear it's not a linear issue there is a lot that has to be happening on all kinds of levels um to deal with with racism and it's it's not for us to walk away and feel hopeless it's for us to sit down and create something that is simple and flexible but does the job yeah so. i understand what you mean yeah and and actually one of the things i'd written down you know in planning for this was to i think from the context that i'm in there's always a real reluctance to get parents and have a conversation with parents and guardians and i think I'm, I'm never really sure why that is. And I think it's maybe because we don't want to deal with all the opinions that are going to come out, come our way. But like you said, by having these conversations, there are people, there's a vast majority that are going to, are going to break it and knock it, knock, knock us down for it. And, but a part of my kind of rebellious attitude is, well, until we don't, until we start to create a space to have a dialogue to say, actually, this is about racial equity now. This is not just about us forcing an agenda because an agenda has been forced for so many years, but it's about undoing that damage Mm. until we get to a point where, you know, representation has been had in the curriculum because right now there isn't that representation, you know, and I think that's the most hurtful thing at the moment. Definitely agree. And I think hopefully coming out of going back into school is... Uh, the events of the past few months that that can be started but just again there's the fine line between tokenism and representation and treading lightly upon that but then also not judging the people who are putting in those practices because the early stages of representation can often look like tokenism so I think once we start that and yeah with these conversations it may sound very depressing that it's going to be such a long time but it's just about kind of being realistic and to me that that's why the focus has to be on equity mm. at the moment rather than quality we need yeah. to give people what they need to get where they're going at the moment and it doesn't look the same for everybody and we have to be very crystal clear about that and what another thing we need to do is start having the conversation with our white allies and the, the people who care, because there are a bunch of people who care, who sometimes our callousness um, has turned them off because we are 
we're angry in some ways. Sometimes we're not mindful of, of, of how things represent. But I've had um, a lot of conversation with my white friends and have actually been able to say to them, you used to gaslight me in a way that and it wasn't purposeful, but that was the impact of it. Whenever I told you that I felt a certain way, you immediately start trying to tell me that what I was feeling, I couldn't possibly be feeling because that person couldn't possibly be like that. And it's in some ways that gaslighting does not help. And it's, it's, it's having a mindful discussion and, and actually being aware of what's happening around us. It's, it, it is literally an awakening for mm. people who have a privilege. It is how we get that awakening happening. And what we have to do is start creating a ripple effect in our small corner of the world. That's one of the big things, not being afraid to have the conversation with our friends definitely like we can't yeah. ask for allies in this fight and then when the allies come we turn them away and say yeah. that mm-hmm. you know their allyship isn't what we need i think it's about educating them so that they can be allies in a way that's beneficial and with equity i think that's where a lot of these like sort of funding and not funding but like um affirmative action and um scholarship schemes go wrong is they they don't bear in mind equity they they treat things in like an equality way when kind of giving everybody just the same grant of money isn't going to undo the oppression that black yeah. people will have compared to mm. white people it's not just it's not just like the the systems it's the social side of it as well it's yeah. how the, your teachers um, certain teachers view you is how the, the students in the class view you, it's how if one student will speak over you because of your your race, your gender, all of these different things can happen. So it's about destigmatizing things as well. And quite frankly, just uh, like a pot of money through a scholarship fund isn't going to change that anytime. No, I'm, I'm laughing for a very strange reason. And I don't know if you guys, because I've got stories. I don't know if you want to hear the story or not. Maybe it's going to take up too much time. <laughs> so I'll probably oh, leave. share it. You want me to share it? I, I, I had a friend once who came as a teacher from Jamaica she landed up in a predominantly white area in an almost white school. And um, <laughs> I, she was being treated really badly by some of the students. And one day she literally broke because a student said to her, I'm going to spit in your face. And my girl totally every ounce of anything she had dropped. She said, Pitinawa. What you say, girl? This is when she lost it. She became so Jamaican. She said, what, what you say I could do? She said, don't, eh, eh. no, 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 this is where. But when she held that standpoint of you do not get to treat me like this, and she became her authentic self. Everybody did this kind of, oh my God, she's, oh my God, she's this, she's that. But the fact of the matter is we take too much under this guise of we have to behave in a certain way. Who gets to tell you they're going to spit in your oh, face and really okay? It's not okay. 
it isn't okay and teachers have feelings as well and that's for white teachers or black teachers we need to understand respect but we also need to know when people are crossing a line and blurring a line and very peacefully call them out on it that's what I you know not to get to the point where my friend got to because it was yeah they had to cut her off in a bit <laughs> you can't just keep your mouth shut because some things are unacceptable yeah but we, we we shouldn't leave it till it gets to where you're so angry you lose control of yourself because that is just again confirming a negative mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that we talk about, and this is something that I've kind of always had to battle with is when you talk about the authentic self, mm. and this idea of pushing down the authentic self in order to conform to fit in, and I think it gets to a certain point when there's so much oppression that at some point you can't maintain it, right? At That's some point it's just not sustainable, and I think this is the point that we've got to where it's not sustainable. Mm. And I think this is the awakening that you're mentioning. And it's interesting we start to look at this idea of the authentic self. Because again, I don't think these are conversations that we're having as broadly as we can because we try to cover them up as much as we can so we can fit in and just get on with our day, just get on with the job. Because that's that same kind of, I I call it like a migrant mentality of just surviving. Mm. Because we have to just get through because we need to just survive. And I think that's a really interesting it's an interesting viewpoint and it's an interesting thing that we kind of need to explore further within education if we are going to look at anti-racism in education honestly and if we're going to really acknowledge imperialism that's something that we have to tackle first and foremost well let, let me give you a default question why is it that anybody who comes um, into Britain is seen as an immigrant but whenever British people <sighs> locate their expats as well you know what is this we've we and we say the same thing i speak about expats why don't i call them immigrants when they're sitting in my country Mm -hmm. i'm calling them expats because we have had our brains washed as well and if we don't unpick that and this is why I love my man, Bob Marley. Emancipate yourself from mental mm-hmm. slavery because none but ourselves can free our minds, yeah? Mm-hmm. Have no walk for atomic, then none of us can stop the time. We have got to be able to understand how we are impacted by this and what we are subliminally passing on to mm-hmm. our children. And when my sons tell me, you always said, don't get in trouble, keep your head down. If I knew what I know now from being on Twitter, I would have been up in the teacher's faces. I just never, ever, because when I'm in a classroom, every single child to me is precious. It's an, I see their color, I see who they are, I see every aspect of them, but they're all precious to me. Mm. And all of them deserve to feel like they belong. Yeah. It never occurred to me. And that's because I hold that standpoint. My mind tells me that anybody in a professional role will put aside their, their personal biases and operate from that perspective. And even though I know people have racist ideals, I just think within a professional role, they will sideline it and do what needs to be done. I think the biggest shock for me being on Twitter is, wow, it's not like that. 
it's been a, a revelation I'm, I'm telling you absolute revelation we and i also find it sorry to interrupt i also find no, it no. very interesting with those people that you work with or you see on twitter that will not be speaking up as much as it's you hear those voices that would like to talk about racism or have racist attitudes but also those people who don't talk about it i think that's also interesting because they they want to be wallpaper now but for so long they've been at the forefront you know and it's like well you can't have it both ways. You gotta, you gotta be part of the conversation. But it involves all of us. It's reprisal, though. A lot of people have too much reprisals. I know for sure lots of people who are friends of mine who may agree with that they won't publicly say it because the reprisals are. are I mean, I am, I am stepping out and at personal cost to myself. I imagine, but. Um, I don't know what ways that will, will come about, but because it's too important for me to continue being silent, um, a lot of people don't feel the same. And there are a lot of people on Twitter, really important people um, who are authors and, and, and things that impact on our education system that say, I want to speak up, but I am reliant on the system that's run by influential white people, that if I annoy them, I cease to have um, the kind of um, marketing power, bargaining power to maintain my life in some way. So some people, this is not going to be a journey without consequence. It is going to have serious consequences on a lot of people if we are expecting change we cannot just think this we're going to skate through it it doesn't work like that definitely and with that it's like the people who speak up who are afraid to speak up and um they're, uh, because they're afraid of like the repressions but then those people who are in power will allow a select few to speak up just to show that they're they're not racist or they're part of the conversation and again, it's just that same narrative of black people are allowed to speak about their troubles only when they're allowed to by those in power and white people. And then again, and even when they do, they have to say it in a certain way, not to offend those people or to affect them in any way that it will make them have to um, examine their own privileges. Mm. But, but a lot of times, just on an even simple level, you go out with your friends and or colleagues and um, you have a choice to make. The choice is, do you point out the very distinct differences in the way they're being treated to the way I'm being treated and spoil everybody's night? Or do you suck it up just so that you don't make everybody feel uncomfortable? Well, I don't think anybody will be going out with me now because I'm done sucking it up. I'm never going to do that again. I, um, I, you know, go for afternoon tea with my friends and my friends get called sir and ma'am and I get called love. And you kind of go, hang on. And recently I went to Leeds to a hotel because I was doing uh, a presentation. I walked in and into this hotel and there was this young lady who 
um, Eastern European. She had tattoos all in her face, down her body. She had all kinds of colors in her hair. And I had a very visible reaction to that. But by the time I realized I had a reaction to it, I started checking myself. I started saying she has a right to do this. You cannot allow this to be. So by the time I went, reached her to at the, the, um, the desk, I was able to present myself, but she treated me atrociously. She, I've never, they, I, and she felt fine being this young black girl who just happened to be there. She works there. She took it over because it was that bad. The next morning when I was all dressed to go and do my presentation, I came down and I spoke to her, to the girl. I said, you treated me yesterday in a way that was not acceptable to me. I said, let me tell you something. Service is not about selectivity. It's not about who you serve. It is about you. It is about whether you can deliver the same standard of service for every single person that walks through this door because selective service is just poor service. And this is a hospitality industry. So no, you don't get to treat me like this. I'm really sorry. So then I was instantly, do you want to make a complaint? I said, no, I don't want to make a complaint because I don't want to take food out of your mouth. What I want you to know is you do not know who you are speaking to. So I came in here tired and looking the way I did yesterday. And let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Valerie Daniel. I'm about to do a bloody presentation to a number of people. Do not think you know who you know just treat mm. everybody just the same way I treated you like a human being by checking myself I'm not saying I'm free of bias because I did have a bias but I know to check myself and that's what I did she didn't and she actively works in the hospitality industry so it's been normalized that it's okay to treat some people in a different way. And that's why we very much have to start taking back what is ours. We are human beings and we deserve. I shouldn't have to worry, can I go into that place? And I do that a lot. Is it worth going that place for a holiday? Um, yeah, what, you know, am I going to put up? If we don't start doing that, then what we're doing is saying that certain things are only there for certain people. So it's going to take courage to make a difference. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. I think we'll do one more question and then we'll open to questions. So, Ava. Do you think that schools can ever become truly anti-racist? Should minority groups seek and create alternative forms of education instead? So... Um, when we think about alternative forms of education, things like um, the Free Black Uni Project that started up to create alternative uni funds for black people or alternative forms like that or homeschooling, just for clarification. This is where things become complex. Um, mm. Whenever we say Black Lives Matter, what do you get back from people who are not comfortable? You get all lives, all lives matter. matter. Yeah? Whenever we start unpicking ourselves out of the fabric and holding ourselves up, what you get is um, a sense of um, they are having to be made special 
and therefore there's something wrong with that. So there's a conversation to be had, I think, because um, if I'm thinking about this really deeply, um, I, I am kind of concerned that... Um, Let's look at it. We, 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 I'm, I'm talking about black people now because the whole BAME thing, that's a whole other thing. Um, mm. Black people make up 4% of the population. What is it that we want? Because we have to decide what it is that we want. We want freedom of movement, freedom of access, freedom to have what we, you know, to be treated like everybody else. That's what we want. When we accept that there are places in this country that probably never ever see a black person still, even though it's 2020, unless they're watching telly. Um, we want that they be taught about us because not teaching about us doesn't mean we don't exist. And mm -hmm. unless they're planning on staying in that little village for the rest of their lives, they're totally ill-equipped to deal with them, with members of the society that, that are there. So I think fine-tuning what we want is important. Can I ask a question, guys, because I'm old, as you can see. So my question is, we get strung out as black people. I keep worrying that we, we, we get strung out about the wrong things, like when a white person braids their hair. That don't bother me one way or another, but people go off on tangents mm -hmm. about appropriating black culture. And, and I'm just like, is this what we want to argue about? Because then everybody drives in onto that. I actually, and it's disrespectful. This, I, yeah, you know what? I don't want anybody to tell me what I can and can't wear, who I can and can't be. So I don't want to focus on the surface of racism. I want to go into the depth of, of, of what we're dealing with. And that is what we tend to do. We're looking at the periphery of it and not actually shifting the core. Of, of the issue so we have to understand what we're fighting for and come for so, to some kind of agreement i think sorry definitely yeah i agree like I think... changing a, a brand um a character or something is not the biggest issue in my opinion like i don't or like pulling an episode of a sitcom from 20 years ago isn't the top of my priorities i know and i think people kind of I think that people often look at it because I think they think it's an easy way to, mm -hmm. especially um, um, as we spoke about I think what I campaigned about performative within like performative activism. It's quite easy to say, oh, that's that wasn't that wasn't very nice from about as we said like twenty years ago. And I think I do understand the issues of cultural appropriation, but then again, I often think that where where do we draw the line where is it cultural sharing like and i think it's all become so blurred now that it's like and there's more important honestly there's more important things we're talking about but but Ava, some of the issues that have been raised with, through comedy, through satire, are mm, some of the most yeah. important issues. And we're killing the message. Why are we doing that? That's part of our history. It's happened. Why are you killing it? I don't understand that. But then if you talk to me about statues being pulled down, um, 
I don't understand why history isn't being treated as cyclical. So it had its place, it had its time, but we've had far more recent history. Why is that not being represented? Why isn't there uh, 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 some kind of structure that says, okay, this is done, it's 50 years, time to move it into... Um, into a museum and make space for more recent history. It's literally telling us that we have to accept this kind of part of our history in such a subtle way that the majority of British people who are looking at these statues actually have no real idea yeah. of impact on, on, on black people. So they think we're being, as Jamaicans would say, we're being extra when we want to say, now that needs to go because it's holding us back. Um, we, should, we just need a public policy that says, this has done its time, move it along. That's the way I see it anyway. And I think it's also understanding what those statues, because it's like you just walk past them every day, you don't understand why they're there and what those people have done. So if I see a statue of someone, you're going to think, oh, that person's probably great, but ultimately they're not. And it's the lack of education as well behind that as well. And I think that then links it back to our curriculum and how we often sugarcoat things mm. to, to, to make it a, basically appealing to the white majority audience that education is give, given out to yeah not feel as bad about I almost feel like especially in school the kind of whole conversation about slavery it often feels like it's being taught in a way to make not the true kind of getting into it it's like it's like they're trying to do it in a way that is like making like catering it to a white audience and that it just doesn't sit right with me but but how do you say to people that um <laughs> it back in the times when we had in, in in africa and in places that had proper structures that the white men came and, 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 and changed, you know, gave us, it turned us from being savages. But when you now understand the history, you know there was industry, there was business, there was all kinds, you know, kings, queens, empires, all, all uh, their own personal things happening in countries. But that's been killed with the story that we've had to go and impart Christianity and impart um, knowledge and, you know, table manners because people eat with their hands. I, I've, I actually asked somebody if they were born with a knife and fork at the bottom of their fingers because, you know, God gave us fingers. So although I've never eaten with my fingers, I don't look down at somebody else who does because they're entitled to, the, to their culture. But that kind of you are from the dark ages and we brought you light. Everything is about darkness and light and anything dark is wrong and anything light is right. And yeah, darkness needs, light needs to, we are light as well. We, we need to pierce this darkness of inequality, pierce this darkness of systemic racism, pierce this darkness of silence being, it being violence. You know, it, it is what it is. Can't we, we need to change. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my passion. I'm off my soapbox now. <laughs> I want to know what Mira thought about the question as well. Like, is 
alternative forms of ways to go or is there hope that you know we can get through this sort of uh, systemic racism that's so ingrained into society and um, education it took us 400 years to get here simming yeah well, it's it going to take more. us at least a lot of time to yeah. get and what it takes is commitment passing the baton like to that young man it's about us making sure that we don't stop speaking that we give our children the the knowledge and the experience of how to navigate themselves how to you know it's, it's really hard for me because what I see in life is um, a lot of white kids that teenage behavior is teenage behavior. And a lot of white kids, it's almost seen like when they do something wrong, it's a rite of passage and it's seen as hijinks. But it's demonized in our black kids and criminalized. They, 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 they can easily become criminals for the same thing that gets excused with, with young white kids. Um, we have to find a way to get the right kind of messages because to the right kinds of people and to not stop having the conversations. It's always got to be on the edge of this issue. We have always got to be on the edge of this issue. If we retreat back into ourselves, yeah, we're, we're, we're going back to the status quo. So it's... How do you do that? Because people are going to get bored. When you talk to people, it's like, oh my God, are you speaking about color again? Are you speaking about race again? And I'm like, we've been living it for 400 years. You're bored of it after four months. Think about that. So no, I'm not going to excuse that. I'm not going to make you feel comfortable. So you can avoid me or you know what's coming when you start having a conversation with me. That's what it is. Exactly. <laughs> Mary, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think you can never lose hope. I think if you lose hope, then you're kind of just kind of submitting yourself to the system. And I think that's an awful, awful position to be in. And I think, yes, okay, sometimes you feel a bit deflated, but ultimately you have to pick yourself back up and you've got to think the fight's a lot bigger. And, and maybe not even seeing it as a fight, just think about it as a... I kind of just see it as a, a challenge to overcome. And I think that has to happen. Like my dad always says, like step by step, you kind of get there. And like Valerie said, this is a, you know, this has been going on for years, you know, even though you might not change people's perceptions completely, but what you can do is start to make prints and make dents into the system. And I think that's what needs to happen. That's all we can do, if not do a little bit more than that. And the more that we work collaboratively and the more that we work together in kind of opening spaces of discussion and dialogue like this and to create small and minor dents where we're trying to marry up what the system is doing to where we want to, what we want to be really studying. I think that's when you start to be able to make dents on a more of a long-term level. Because if we see, if we're looking at education and thinking it's, that's it, there's no hope left in it, then, well there's just no point having the discussion right now. I think we have to be able to be hopeful and to think that actually it's absolutely possible to educate 
our young, our current generation, our young, the younger population, and, and equip them with the skills needed to the best of our ability as teachers and as educators. And whilst that system is there, to say actually we acknowledge this is the system. We are fully aware of what this system is. I'm not hiding about it, but let's figure out what we could do to to read that system better, to be critical of it as you move through it. I I think one of the biggest um, one of the biggest blows to racism that we have is this concept of individualism. It's where people like myself and yourself and anybody who has kind of managed to break through the glass ceiling, they're held up as, um, look, if they can do it, um, then anybody can. Um, in all reality, it's all this concept of, you know, they've pulled themselves up from the grassroots. I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm not a grassroots person. Back where I came from, I was not grassroots. I lived a very, you know, <laughs> affluent life. And I came here with that mindset. My mom was a head teacher of a big not 19 school. My dad worked with, with a, um, a, a, a massive American um, company. So, and he was a, a, a supervisor within that company. So I didn't actually come from what people think. And this country is not geared up to think of middle-class black people. That's a very scary concept. So one of those things is this idea of, of individualism. Oh, look at this lovely Asian girl that's pulled herself up, or this lovely black person that's pulled themselves up. But they happen, they just need to speak the same language as the people who are in power, but just carry a different color skin. We need collectivity. We cannot keep being focused on individualism because it is killing the whole agenda. We have to understand how we raise everybody, not just the one or two that somebody is deemed fit to give an opportunity to, as I've listened to some of these people on Twitter talking about. No, how do we raise up our youth? And it's in, in raising all youth, we're raising our black kids, our Asian kids, our white kids, we're raising everybody. When will we get to that level? You know, but it's the mindset that we don't just pick people off. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> I think we are nearing the end. Um, we may run over slightly. So Sorry. You have to leave. No, Feel free. Um, but I just, time I'm just conscious that uh, people from the audience might have some <gasps> questions. Um, so feel free if anyone, does anyone have any questions? And you can type them in the chat box as well. But I know Rakai has been desperate to speak. So <laughs> go ahead. Uh, anyway, um, I just wanted to say that like for years now, We've been doing all these type of things, forums and stuff like that. But I don't know why, but every, like, it's about, like, every 10 years, something happens and then it triggers us to stop protesting. And then we stop. And then a few years more, it happens again. Like, it can't continue like this because we're just, we're just doing this, but we're not taking any action. 
and it's really upsetting because we just we just see um, disheartening news, and then all we do is just sit down and talk, and then like this Black Lives Matter protest it only happened for like about one month. It should it should still be happening because especially in this like recession time, people are not even working as much. Um, they're working from home. But you still have more time to still protest and we should speak out more. And it's not just about speaking, we should be taking action, going out there and, and expressing how we're feeling, not just staying like uh, just doing normal forums. And can, I, can, I can I interrupt you a second? The concept that we are sitting here in today says not a trend. So that's actually different. In other words, we're not willing to let this die. This is, this is make or break time. So we're, we're not willing to let this just die a natural death. And that's an important thing to understand. I believe the protests have done its part. And um, what we need is sustained action, not action that comes from this place. It needs to come from a place of assertive anger, not impotent rage and when what you have is when you have this thing of impotent rage i don't know if you've ever heard of um agent provocateurs when we had black lives matter we want peaceful protest but there are people who are paid to go in and set people off to start looting and shooting and doing that then that is what the public sees and we end up killing our own message so we have to understand how we're going to do this and how we don't buy into what is being set out for us all the time. We can't run into that. It's not useful or helpful. So I hear what you're saying, about, and I, I believe exactly that rotation of, oh, we have something big, something happens, here's a riot, here is a whatever, then we get quiet again. No, we can't be quiet. But what we have to be is smart. What we have to be is sustained. What we have to do is understand the problem and how we're attacking it. So we're coming from all sides all the time. We also need to know that when people are out in front, they need a rest sometimes. And there are other people that take up the baton and they come out in front as well. Because what happens when you have only some people out in front, they become a part of the problem because it becomes individualism again. You can't have the same people talking all the time. It does not help. It becomes about, it's just like Martin Luther King. Everybody can talk about Martin Luther King. What they don't talk about is the sustained action that surrounded Martin Luther King. You know, with, you know, the, the women on the bus, that was sustained and planned action. So it's, are we going to, do we have the discipline? Do we have the verve or do we want, because a lot of what white people are worried about is that we want power over them. I don't want power over anybody. I just want my seat at the table with respect. So we have to be clear that that's what we want because if we're looking for power, we're fighting a different battle. You understand where I'm coming from? Yes, um, um, we're not supposed to be looking for power because what we're supposed to be doing is we're trying to make everyone equal. We're not trying to make the tables turn because it's just wrong. Because, like, if you look in history, there's so much slavery. 
Like when we learn it in school, it's just biased. It's not not from um, a perspective that we're supposed to, um, um, a different perspective, but from the perspective that they want. Like I blame the curriculum a lot because um, I remember when um, we were talking about stereotypes in history, um, in um, humanities, and um, they talk about um, like um, terrorists, um, gang violence and that black people are the ones that do um are mostly in gangs and white people are innocent and um terrorists are muslims and then when i try to object that i just see this boy he's white um and then he says i'm stupid for objecting it and, I, and then when i um try to rage back at him he um everyone in the class is telling me that i should calm down but why am I supposed to calm down and keep my mouth shut? Especially when the boy is saying absolutely rubbish. Because you, you can't tell me to just keep my mouth shut, especially when he's making no sense at all. When and I try to object it because I'm saying, oh, no, that's not right. And then he's saying that I'm stupid for saying right. that that's not right. Let me give you a little Jamaican wisdom. The little Jamaican wisdom my mum used to say, don't eat the dumpling when it's hot. Because you burn your tongue, you burn your mouth, you burn your gums, you mess up your teeth. It's not like you give up. You need to know when to step away from something, but you never, ever give up. You find another way to deal with it. You write it, you send emails, you write poems, you do. You don't give up but you don't conform to what people think you are. I will never, that's one thing I don't do. You think I'm going to carry on and start, um, you know, like my friend did, took off her leadership and start cussing. I'm never going to do that because that is what you want from me. So I will not, I understand. And it is so unfair to ask you young people to not just be your, your natural teenage self. But what happens is if you get to the point where your anger starts driving what you do, you're not getting anywhere. So don't eat the dumpling when it's hot. Remember that. Come away, but don't give up. You find another way to address what is really important. Can't give up. Definitely. And I think that's the advice that, you know, we have to take through all of these ventures through any system we're trying to change, whether it be education, the criminal justice system, healthcare, and just uh, if we keep that approach, I think that is what's going to help drive us forward and keep this movement sustainable and not like a fleeting conversation. Yeah. So does anyone else have any questions? Um, I'd I just like to... Um... I wanted to say that um, we should have like a, a lot of forums in different schools. We should have like um, an organization that um, has schools to um, discuss what we need to change like this, uh, but just more because it seems that we're going to be taking over in the future. And when we are left in charge, we, we can't, we can't just continue like the past. We have to make plenty of changes. We have to try and shape the world into a better place. But there's just some people who are going to keep quiet, even though they have good intentions. And we can't just allow that because we need to have more people 
speaking out and not just keeping quiet. Because if we keep quiet forever, nothing's going to change. No one's going to listen. Everyone's just going to be doing the same thing that they've done before. And it's not going to affect in a good way. Instead, it's going to be the same or worse, which is not good. And if we have more people speaking out, it'll be great. And like these type of panels... Can I ask you a question? When when you say you're going to be taking over in the future, what what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean when you say you're taking over? over? What do you mean when you say that? I mean, like um, when 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 we grow older, when we grow older, because you know when um, the new generation. I don't mean taking over. I mean taking over, like when we start to have jobs. I knew what you meant. I know what you meant. But somebody listening to this is instantly going to assume that you want power over them. And that is why language is a very, very oh. important. No, I know that. I know you weren't saying that. But somebody listening, hearing the words taking over and being in charge, their assumption is that you, your aspirations are to, um, to turn around and enslave them. Or to so language in this journey, language is a very important aspect. How we talk, what how we frame what we're saying so that we're crystal clear is very, very, very important. Because I understand you, but other people you 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 could end up feeding into their fear and that immediately you don't have the kind of buy-in that you should have when that was not what you meant at all. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm very sorry. Eh? I'm very sorry if... Oh, no, 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 don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. Just be isn't conscious of time that we've run over. I know um, mm. Simon and um, Mila have a question and then I think we'll end I, I don't mind. I, I don't mind saying... ...run over. Um, so uh, your question or comment... <laughs> Um, yeah, hi, um, I'm Mila. Um, so I've just finished, like, I've had the full secondary school experience. And um, one thing that I guess anyone can answer this question, I just wanted to ask about, like, punishment in schools, because I have very strong opinions about the fact that punishment in schools doesn't work for anyone, even, like, white people. But I feel like um, the teachers who are giving out the punishments then have the added power of being able to to be discriminate discriminatory discriminate something um when they're handing out those punishments and i know a lot of white people are white children are shown more mercy and a lot of teachers will fear the students of color and then you know just go straight to like oh you're getting a detention um and then there are like resolutions as well that happen after the detention where those students are just expected to apologize and then that's what the resolution is when actually in in the reality is that a lot of times teachers can be wrong and that's I don't feel like that is something that's talked about so my question is like I personally think that punishments in schools should be eliminated because if it worked we wouldn't need them anymore but apparently we still have them going on so my question is like do can is there any way we can just eliminate punishment in schools? I think. Uh, 
I think I don't know if we can because um, teenagers are growing and developing and we're still in the process of learning right and wrong. However, if one of the things I said earlier was around anybody who is, has the responsibility of a teacher, they need to understand what drives them because if what drives them is fear or racism or privilege or whatever it could be, that punishment can be misappropriated, which then causes resentment. And it causes, you know, children don't have a voice. And if you are blatantly seeing what my sons are 25 and 23, and they are telling me exactly, they t they've told me exactly what you're saying that punishments are selective, people are not treated the same way. But then I'm on Twitter and a mass of people are trying to tell me that the system is, is not racist in any way. But what you are describing is racism and it's being done from the fear that is drip fed into the public. The public are constantly seeing that black people are a threat. If you leave them, this is what I know that punishments need to fit the crime and not a crime punishments need to fit the behavior and when there is just one kind of punishment for all kinds of behavior it can't be fair mm. i see this exclude you know i i was horrified because i'm not british that kids are put into isolation just like what are you fitting them up for jail what is that yeah. I don't understand that. I also don't understand the idea of forcing somebody to apologize because then that's not really an apology. Yeah. What it is, is you have made, you have bent somebody to your will and you have um, used coercion to get. Because if somebody isn't truthfully sorry, then I'd, I wouldn't want that apology if that was me. I want what comes from a place of truth. So I think a lot needs to be done about these systems. Um, you know, I've heard of schools where kids aren't allowed to talk in the corridor and all kinds of things that in my head doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I also don't want to say that because it doesn't make sense to me means that it has no value. I just want to understand the value. So I want to have the conversation. And a massive part of that conversation for me should include the, the, the young people who should be able to say, these are the punishments that we think are, are applicable because you're all not stupid. I used to ask my mm. kids, so you've done this what do you think is a fitting crime? The first thing I'm going to get is a shortened version of what that is because they don't want to hang about in that too long. But once you discuss it, you come up with something that is, is, is sensible. But people yeah. look at that as progressive. So I, don't know. I agree with you, Valerie. I think it has to come from a point where we're working together. And likewise, we're asking students as to what the consequence is for actions that are sometimes like these call them punishments, but I think you're right. I think there's so many occasions where I've heard other students talk about some of the punishments that have gone around school and they, I do deem them to be unfair and reluctant who would not want to admit, like you've mentioned, Mila, that you, they won't want to admit that they're in the wrong yeah. and the sense of pride and ego gets in the way because you don't want to admit, you know, there might be a mistake there. And I think as much as teachers 
you are a role model and if to be a proper role model you have to admit that sometimes if you have made the wrong decision to say so and have that open dialogue and be transparent and say actually I did make a mistake there this was this was my pride working I didn't you know and I think that has to be said because if we don't do that then you're not acknowledging that we're, we're human okay? yeah. and I think that that's a really valuable part of that dialogue and trust building that we need to have with students you know and even if as a teacher if I've heard that something injustice happened I always encourage students to go back and open up that dialogue and be the better person working in secondary it's really important that you're empowering young people to feel that they can question decisions but in a manner which is appropriate so that yeah. like Valerie says having that language available is important in order to get the right answers in order to have a progressive conversation and not feel like if we go in there with that kind of aggression that you were kind of talking about before Valerie that if you go in with that and that level of anxiety you're going to get that negativity coming back mm. but going in there feeling you're going to be progressive and I want to have I want to heal this relationship mm-hmm. so ultimately we are building relationships and we are building rapports and we are building people who are going to be part of my community because when I do go out to the shopping center and I see kids from my school I still get the hi miss you okay and that's what I want to feel Mm. you know and I think that's really important and before I used to be like really embarrassed oh I don't want anyone to see me but now I'm like it's great if I see someone say hello like this is a we shouldn't ever and if I've and it's those kids I've maybe told off or maybe pointed something out it's always those students who have that moment where you're like oh do you know what you taught me this we had a restorative conversation and we've we've learned something okay you made a mistake and you had a bad day but I was there and we worked through it and that's when we start to build that healing process but as if we as teachers understand that once we cross paths with any child, and that's from the early years all the way through, mm. we don't get forgotten. I personally yes. don't want to be remembered as the person that made you feel so bad about yourself. Absolutely, yeah. And that message for me came home so blatantly because my ex-husband um, is 15 years older than me, 75 And he still remembers his nursery teacher who was awful to him because his first language was Dutch and he was dropped into the middle of an English school. And the way he was treated, and this is in the West Indies, he's never forgotten that woman. And the the, the way he feels, this woman must be dead, done, long uh, forgotten, but he's not forgotten her and he doesn't remember her in a nice way, Mm. in a kind way. We should not, we have to be mindful of the impact we have on people's lives because it goes with them. They remember you long after you're dead. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. So definitely, I think with that, yeah, we're going to I agree. Um, thank you so much for everyone who came. Thank you so much to Valerie and Mira. Um, we really appreciate it. Yeah, you guys are having us. Thank you very much for your contributions. I'm sure everyone, everyone, um, thank uh, you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.